0: Hello and welcome to episode 51 of the Scottish Liberty Podcast with me, Anthony Samroff. This episode is going to be my appearance on Mike Tilden's Battle for Liberty podcast. Great name for a podcast and great podcast host. In this, we discuss a little bit about my journey to becoming a libertarian. Then we talk a little bit about the history of philosophy of statism and anarchism. Finally, we're going to talk about my free ebook, Common Misconceptions About Capitalism Debunked, and you can get that for free at antonysamroth.com. But before that, we launch into discussing the environment. Now, we have discussed the environment on this show before, but it's really not something that we libertarians can discuss enough because we are losing on this issue. And free marketeers have great solutions to environmental problems they are much better than the leftist solutions which is to get the government to step in and do something which has largely failed so far in any meaningful way other than to stunt economic growth so in this interview I take it from some different angles than I've done in my previous podcasts, and there's some new points and definitely no one can fail to benefit from a recap or a restatement of points I've already made. Sometimes hearing the same point made in two or three different ways really helps you get a handle on that point and on how to communicate it effectively. So I really hope you enjoy this episode. Let us know what you think. Email us at scottishlibertypodcast at gmail.com or leave a comment on YouTube.
1: Hello and welcome to another episode of The Battle for Liberty. Once again, I'm your host, Mike Tilden. The show notes page for this week's episode will be battleforliberty.com 32. And let me tell you, the show notes page is jam-packed this week. And the reason it's jam-packed is because we're going to talk about one of the most common objections that's thrown in the face of anarchists, and that is the problem of protecting the environment. Anytime you say you're an anarchist and you want all human interaction uh, to be made between consenting voluntary uh, parties, one of the most common things you'll hear has to do with the environment. They'll say, well, without the state, these evil corporations who you know, are motivated only by profit will squander the natural resources, they'll admit toxic pollutants, and they'll ruin the environment for everyone. How could a one hundred percent market-based, voluntary economy protect the environment without the necessary evil of a coercive and, maybe potentially violent set of sanctions levied by the state? This week's guest is Anthony Samaroff, and he happens to be the host of the Scottish Liberty Podcast. He's tackled this objection so thoroughly, you'll want to take notes during this episode. It's like hearing a professor teach a class. After this week, you will never again wonder, gee, how do anarchists plan to protect the environment? Antony also happens to be an accomplished author, and he's got a free ebook that you can download. But if you want to know more, you gotta keep listening. So let's talk to Antony Samaroff. Antony, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you, Mike, for having me on. Really excited to be here. Yeah, it's our privilege.
1: I, uh, I first heard of you uh, on the Tom Woods show at the beginning of this month in episode 860, which, of course, I'll link to on the show notes page. And I thought you did just a fantastic job. Um, and I, I, when, I, when I heard you, I knew I had to get you on my show to help me explain an area of libertarian thought that admittedly I'm not as strong as I'd like to be. Hmm. Um, So we're going to get into that. But before we do that, I'd like to talk briefly about what I call your battle for liberty. So have you always been a libertarian?
0: No. In fact, the word libertarian has hardly been heard in Scotland. Even when I became a libertarian about eight years ago, uh, no one here had heard the words, but slowly it's been trickled into usage. Um, When I grew up, I guess I, I... I was against the wars. I was very sceptical of authority. And I guess to a degree, government... Yeah, definitely. I was sceptical about government, but I still believed that government could be a force for good. Uh, I was a civil libertarian, and uh, I cared about poor people in the environment. And so I guess I just kind of assumed that I was a lefty. And I was, I was. But I wasn't... I wouldn't say that I was like really far i was probably what you'd call a progressive in the united states although we didn't use that word um uh, and that i believed in a market economy but strongly regulated and uh, with government to uh, let's say moderate the excesses of capitalism now my dad was a conservative but Let's say he he didn't exactly listen to Milton Friedman or read Hayek or anything like that, so he wasn't a, as good a debater as me and certainly wasn't as um, well-read as me. So when I debated him, I always came to the conclusion that I must be right because um, no one was really putting up a strong argument uh, that uh, contradicted my opinions. Then I got onto the internet and I started putting videos on YouTube sharing some views uh, on politics because my my thoughts were, I keep on having to explain these things to people again and again, why don't I just put up a video on YouTube and then I'll get out what I want to say and if I ever want to send it to anyone I'll be able to do that. And um, that was about 2007 or something like that, so... Then what happened was, well, basically Ron Paul came along and he was the first, he kind of blew my mind because he was the first politician I saw that, you know, was staunchly against the war and was putting up arguments for free markets. And he was a civil libertarian and that kind of like blew my mind sort of, because I'd never heard these positions argued for. At the same time, a bunch of libertarians started gate-crashing my YouTube channel and leaving comments, um, directing me to other videos, arguing with me. And um, so I started doing my research, and over the next couple of years, I migrated from being a leftist, I became more and more libertarian until I, I just, I couldn't, I ran out of contradictions, and I, I had to go full blown and cap. <laughs>
1: such a, it's such a common story. Um, the both the multiple year transition, which that aligns mm. with me for sure. Um, but also the Ron Paul message, which I, I wish mm. I could count myself in the people who were who were transformed by Ron Paul. Certainly, um, you know he. He's an amazing person. And if I could go back and do it again, I would have found libertarianism much sooner. But uh, yeah, I'm keeping an informal poll in my head about um, how many people tell me that it was Ron Paul. And it seems like I can put Mm. you uh, on that list as well. Is is that accurate? (laughs)
0: Yeah, well, uh, he was certainly a big part of it. Uh, uh, at the end of the day, it wasn't him that convinced me. It was other videos that I'd been let, led on to and other content creators. But he certainly, let's say, made a crack that someone could put um, implement into Widen, and, and the other cr- um, content creators widened the, the crack.
1: Yeah, he opened that door. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's great. Um Other than Ron Paul and and videos on social media, was there any seminal moment that you can pinpoint as the turning point, whether it's a book or an article or an author or even uh, an event? Was there anything that you can pinpoint?
0: Well, I'm sorry that I don't have a story of flash and fire, but really it was a migration of opinion. And I I don't know when exactly. I, I just started calling myself an anarchist first and... I thought, I guess, you know, some left wing ideas of workers owning their own workplaces and things like that that are less hierarchical and things like that had still had a certain type of appeal to me. But I started thinking, well, you know, that's um, compatible with a free market system. And if you didn't have such an authoritarian education system, then perhaps people would be more prepared to do that kind of thing. So uh, I don't have a flash and fire story for you. Um, I'm afraid it was it was a migration and it just shows that sometimes people, it takes time for, for the mind to change because the mind is like a river running down the side of a mountain. It likes the path it's used to, it likes the path of least resistance. And in order to change the mind, there needs to be enough um, contact with a different route down the mountain so that uh, it shifts over it shifts over to a new position and and um, that's why I, th- I guess we have to be patient sometimes with people cuz just because you see it as logical doesn't mean that the person you're speaking to um, can step into your paradigm yet
1: yeah that's a great analogy i'm going to if you don't mind i'm going to steal that in the future the river running down a mountain i really like that uh, yes please do <laughs> yeah i'd be happy please to um, so you, you you talked about how you started calling yourself an anarchist, and I wonder. Um, I've handled that term, and and certainly the problems with that term and the misconceptions uh, of that term in the United States. I wonder how is that term perceived in Scotland?
0: Well, the thing is, it's the first anarchists were socialists, or the first people to use the term. And so maybe it was just a politically correct way of not saying that I was a um, greedy, capitalist, free marketeer peg while I was at college. I just said that I was an anarchist instead, and that was kind of maybe a little bit more acceptable amongst left-leaning people. But I guess the average person, if you said you were an anarchist, they'd look at you funny, not really know what that meant. Probably think you were crazy, or just had very radical views. Um, so I I wouldn't say that it's exactly a popular term, but it, it depends what the setting is. It's probably reasonably acceptable to say so if you're at university.
1: Oh, fascinating! I you know I didn't know I. I haven't done my homework on the history of the anarchy movement. I certainly uh, define it here on this show and have talked about it many times, but that's the first time anyone's told me that it started out um, kind of as the as the uber-lefty uh, communist type. That's very fascinating.
0: Yeah, the, the kind of communist anarchists, yeah. I mean, Marx had um, a series of letter exchanges or arguments with an anarchist of his time called Bakunin, who believed that the state had to be abolished first, or as part of abolishing capitalist capitalism, whereas Marx said, "No, you need you need the state to abolish capitalism, and then you can phase out the state." Whereas the the anarchist leftists had a skepticism towards state power, uh, which is maybe why they they've not really been taught an educational. Institutions, or they're not; their thought is not really well heard of or thought of. Because when you look through history, most of the philosophers that are well known are ones that gave justification for state power. You know, from Plato right up to uh, Kant, who said, "Well, you should act the way that if everyone acted that way, it would be good." Uh, oh yeah, by the way, except for government, because they have to do this, that, or the other, yeah. or say or say Hegel who believed that history was guided by the world spirit and that a world spirit would speak or act through the great men that led nations and things you know philosophers who um, gave justifications for state power have long since dominated in terms of the the, their influence and uh, on the history of ideas and, and being taught to the exclusion of um, philosophers that were very skeptical of state power.
1: Wow, there's just so much to this. It, every time I talk with someone who um, is as knowledgeable, uh, especially about the historical aspects of this movement, it just reminds me how new I am to it uh, relatively uh, and and how much there is to learn. And certainly you and I could probably talk for another 20 to 20 minutes to five hours about this kind of stuff. But I, sure. I do want to circle back to that topic that I mentioned at the beginning, uh, the the area of libertarian thought where um, I, I know I have some some policy and and philosophy opinions and viewpoints, but I'm just not as strong as I'd like to be. Uh, and that is the environment. So I'd like to talk to you uh, about libertarian environmentalism. Um, and this is an area that I know you've done a lot of thinking and you've created some great content that's available um, and as we talk about it, um, listeners, be aware, it'll all be on the show notes page, uh, which will be BattleForLiberty.com slash um, 32. And so that's where you can get everything, BattleForLiberty.com slash 32. But um, let's talk about environmentalism. So as usual, like everything else, there's this orthodoxy of debate that's developed in regards to how we're supposed to think of mankind's interaction with the environment. And the accepted positions, um, I'm gonna generally, they, they could be a little different one way or the other, but generally you have the option to believe either number one, you believe that mankind is assuredly affecting the environment in a negative way to the degree that we must immediately use the power of the state to regulate behaviors in an effort to mitigate those effects or Number two, you could believe that mankind isn't affecting the environment in a negative way, and so no regulation is necessary. But as usual, as libertarians, we love to come in and say, no, no, there's another way to look at this. So uh, because I know you're so knowledgeable, and you've done Mm. a lot of great work, I'm going to ask you, what is the libertarian response to environmentalism?
0: Well, big question. I think the the planet is basically our home, isn't it? I mean, if the if the if we destroy the planet, then we we destroy ourselves. So I guess the libertarian position uh, should be that the environment's important. The question is, what is the best way to look after the environment? And for a long time, the question has been uh, and has been completely dominated by leftists, it's almost assumed that it's capitalism or free markets even worse, uh, because people have a wide range of definitions of capitalism. It's basically assumed that, okay, so we've got these greedy corporations, the only thing that they care about is money, and that is what's destroying the planet, because they're willing to put the planet to the sword in order to make a profit. Now, the reality is much, much more complicated than that. In economics, there's a term called externalities, which is that if you and I make a trade, then there can be other people who are affected by that trade. For example, um, I can sell you a car and you and I could be both be happy with that. But if that car is polluting to the environment, neither of us have paid the cost of picking up the tab for the environmental damage. Now, this clear example has led people to think that externalities are something that are inherent to the market. And it is a compelling point of view. But actually, if you look at history, there was a time when the law was somewhat Different from what it is now. It was called the common law. And under the common law, you basically had the right not to be harmed in your person or your property. So if someone was to put a factory up the road from you and the smoke from the factory was wafted by the wind towards your washing and it was covered in smoke, you actually had the right to take that factory, take that polluter to court and get compensation. Until the latter part of the 19th century, this form of law, that was considered successful. If you harmed another person person, and their person or their property, you had a duty to restore them to their additional condition. So then there was a change in the law that was documented by a historian called Martin J. Horowitz in a two-volume treatise called The Transformation of American Law. And the legal system began to change. Industrialists went to the government and uh, instituted a more collectivist law where they said, you know, you greedy individual, just thinking about yourself, this factory is creating economic growth. This factory is putting people in work. So it's for the common good. It's for the common good that we should allow these violations. Now, on a free market, this seems very radical to people, you know, some, but something like a river might be privatized or owned in sections. And for a lot of people, that might create some kind of horror. But the thing is, what they don't realize is that with property, comes responsibility. So if someone is designated the owner of a river or a part of the river and they pollute in that river and it goes and harms someone else's property, you know who's personally liable and you know who has to pay reparations. What's more, so many of our resources that are renewable, like grazing lands or forests or fisheries, on a free market, that owner has the maximum amount of incentive to, say, use that forest in such a way that it will provide timber forever. Whereas when there's communal owners, the idea is, well, if I don't cut down the wood soon and fast, someone else might come in and do that. And economists call that the problem of the commons. When resources are held in common there's an incentive for everyone to take as much as quickly as possible. Whereas when owners are designated, then not only do they have an incentive to use that resource sustainably, they also want to maintain or even increase the value of that land so that if they ever want to sell it, then they won't be just slaying a goose that lays golden eggs and getting less for that resource than they otherwise would. And finally, if someone does abuse a resource, for example, and um, polluting in a river, that pollution is going to run down to other people's property, and you know exactly who's responsible and who's to sue so that's the free market's conception of environmentalism is that property rights delineate responsibility and rights to people and will prevent pollution by the deterrence of legal action or class action lawsuits against polluters. And there's so many ways that the the profit motive, which is thought of as somehow responsible for the destruction of the environment, is actually responsible or gives incentives to maintain the environment. For example, if I want to produce something and sell that for a profit, The cheapest way to do that is to use the minimum amount of inputs possible. So I'm always going to be looking for ways to produce that product using less and less resources. And if I do, I become more competitive than other firms. So other firms will be inclined to copy my innovations. So the companies that stretch resources the furthest are the most likely to uh, acquire them because they they can also pay more to acquire them so the person who's best uh, using a copper mill copper mine rather or an oil well who can who can stretch those resources furthest that's the person who's going to be able to acquire those resources on a free market so uh, there's lots and lots that could be said. I do have a couple of resources that I recommend people check out. One is called "Only Capitalism Can Save the Planet; Socialism Will Destroy the Earth," and you can find that on YouTube. And there's there's a blog that I wrote, which was called 10 Ways the Profit Motive Drives Sustainability." So for people who are interested, I suggest they take check that blog out, and I'll I'll give you a link to it that you can put on your show notes page. Finally, it would be great to do some research into the kind of environmental destruction which was commonplace in communist countries and socialist countries. There's a great article on The Federalist which is called If You Think Communism is Bad for People, Check Out What It Did to the Environment, and that is just really a premier. There's lots of other resources that go into detail uh, on how bad the socialist countries were how bad they still are. You know, if, if you look at China and its more communist forms and they were a lot worse for the environment than the, the capitalist countries were. And one of the reasons for that is because... The central planners just distributed resources here and there. Oh, here's where the resources go. There's where the resources go. There was no price system to bid off resources to the highest bidder and encourage people to take better care of scarce resources. When you've got a system of central planning, even if a resource is scarce, you can still continue to allocate it to um, cronies. Whereas on a market system, the more scarce a resource is, the higher the price of that resource. So that actually drives innovation to find alternatives or find ways of treating that resource better. And it also means that that resource is likely to end up in the hands of the people who can use it the best. And I should just also say one more thing, uh, which is the innovations that come out of capitalist economies because um, communist countries... Are comparatively uncreative, but if you look at what 's happening, you know we we have these led lights that take a quarter of the amount of energy as a regular incandescent bulb uh, soon through this cloning technology, you know burgers might be grown in a lab from cloned meat without all the resources that it takes to grow all that feed for the for the the beef and they'll be able to fortify them with vitamins and things like that. The average smartphone has a camera, a radio, television, sound recorder, music player, GPS, flashlight, card games, computer games, a video player, maps, encyclopedias, dictionaries, you know. So basically we're dematerializing what would have taken a lot of resources into one device and then... One of my favorite new innovations that I've been reading about, this was a process designed for the third world where they've got these high-tech toilets that use, they basically flash evaporate urine and they they turn the, the feces into fertilizer and they don't need any running water or any pipes and they generate energy. So these could have been invented decades and decades ago if not for the state insisting on the municipal water system that we have, and they would have been much better for the environment because rather than they waste anything, the toilets basically give back fertiliser, table salt, uh, fresh water, and enough power to ch- charge a mobile phone. So if you could plug that into the grid and sell the energy back to the government, you'd literally be being paid to poop. So I'm not shitting you when I say the free market can be good for the environment.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Wow, that was there's a lot packed into that. So just getting back to that original question, you know, the way I framed it, that the accepted positions are either you believe that mankind is affecting the environment and we must have the state uh, do something about it, or you believe, well, the uh, mankind really isn't affecting the environment all that much, so regulation isn't necessary. If I'm hearing you correctly, what you're saying is, as usual, the libertarians come along and they say, no, you've both got it wrong. Um, yes, mankind um, is absolutely affecting our environment. We affect our environment every day. The question is to what extent and... The question is, what is the best way to mitigate those effects? Exactly, And and it seems to me that there's a lot of history and evidence that shows that um, we might not have the 100% best answer, but we certainly know what the answer isn't. And the answer is not that the state takes care of the environment. Am I correct
0: on that? Well, when you say the state takes care of the environment, it really... It really depends what you mean by that. If you mean enacts the common law and preserves property rights, including people's right not to be aggressed against or to have their property damaged or to have their health damaged by pollution, then uh, while we have a state, the state could certainly play the role. Although the courts, again, this comes back to history, the courts used to be considered separate from the state. They aren't anymore. Uh, So... But if you think the solution is for the state to take acquisition of resources that are limited and give people licenses for who gets to use them and who doesn't, then you're mistaken because that is the worst of all worlds. What tends to happen in that system is that um, someone will get the leasing rights to say a forest they'll create an ancillary company which is like a child company and that company will log the forest and sell it to the parent company basically at a loss they'll sell the timber to the parent company at knock down rate then that small company will go out of business leaving the taxpayer to pick up the tab for restoring the environmental damage this is why you know licensing there it's very damaging when it or it's because renters don't take as good care of property as owners do so supposing let's take a river when it's got a particular ownership rather than the, the le- rights to pollute this ri- river being leased out by the government, wh- which is basically when, when a government m- writes a policy document about a river, they're tending to delineate who's allowed to exploit the river on what terms and in what measure, right? Yep. So special favors can always be handed out to cronies or campaign contributors or to stimulate local business or for any political ends that might attract a short-term support for office holders, right? Yes. So that the policy document is there to decide who's allowed to exploit the river. When you have a particular owner, they are, it's fully in the interest of the owner to keep it in pristine condition for at least three reasons. One is to preserve the value of the resource. The second is to make sure whatever is useful about that resource Re- remains useful indefinitely so that they can continue to draw profit from the function of it without that resource being damaged. And finally, yeah, obviously, the threat of litigation if the the owner allows that po- uh, river to be unfairly polluted.
1: That's fantastic. See, this is why I wanted to have you on the show, because these are some of the points, I think, that that many... People who claim to be free market in, in most areas, but then when it comes to the environment, they, they throw their hands up and say, well, I guess there, we just don't have a choice. This is, this is precisely what I wanted to get into. And so that was a great clarification. It seems to me that what you're saying is it's not necessarily state versus anti state. It's how you define protecting the environment. And, and you've made it crystal clear in my mind that, um, you know, if the state is going to step in and, and endorse common law and property rights, then sure fine the state can be the steward that that that's that doesn't make a difference but the key really is whether or not we endorse common law or natural law and property rights which funny as it is tends to be the the theme of this entire podcast so we didn't even right. plan we didn't even plan that folks <laughs> um, that was great you talked about a number of, of things in there that i think are Absolutely fantastic ideas in libertarianism. Uh, things like externalities, which um, I'll save for a later date, common law, uh, and the tragedy of the commons. Uh, all three things I think are, at least in my mind, seem like they are common sense things that everybody should be taught about. And of course they're not. I guess what I want to ask you, and and I'm asking a lot of you, um, almost like how do we fix mankind, but why are these ideas... uh, uh not taught i mean why is it that people like you and i have to have this discussion and and people listen to us and say you know what no one's ever talked to me about externalities or the tragedy of the commons mm. or anything like that why do you think that is
0: well how conspiratorial do you want to go it could be a case of rational ignorance where the amount of impact that a person will have on their own life for learning these concepts is relatively little because you know they get one vote so even if they know all about these topics what are they going to do so the teachers don't know about them because the teachers have never had a reason to know about them so they don't have them to pass them on to their students it's never it's never really been in most people's interest to learn about these things it's in our collective interest in fact that could be seen as some kind of market failure uh, so to speak because it's in our collective interest to know about this stuff, but it's not in anyone's individual interest. On the other hand of the spectrum, you could say that, that, well, this is deliberately engineered because these ideas are basically subversive and it's damaging to the status quo for large numbers of people to believe that the state is actually a bad actor when it comes to the environment rather than a saviour. So we have this school system which teaches um, a a view of history which is very favourable to government. Government came in and, and swept away the profiteering capitalists or or mitigated their effects during the industrial revolution and people would still be going up chimneys if it wasn't for the government which is completely nonsense because actually the whole society was really really poor back then so people did those things because they basically had to and as soon as societies become rich enough to take their children out of factories they do it's not just that all throughout history people hated their children and sent them to work on farms and in factories it's just that society was really poor so it was actually capitalism capitalism that led to children stopping working cuz children worked all throughout history but the thing is it's favorable to government to teach this and since the government is responsible for the education system it shouldn't surprise you that um things that paint the government in a bad light aren't taught so much. I mean, they might teach you about the wars and history, but then they come along and say, oh, but then what happened after the wars? Well, we got together after the First World War, we got together in the League of Nations. And then after that, the Second World War, we had the United Nations. And this was an idea to put war to end. So you've always got these accounts of history that are very favorable to government institutions. Uh, in the same way that, you know, if Coca-Cola were paying for all, all the schools, you probably wouldn't hear the schools promoting Pepsi. <laughs> so there's an uh, incentive there. And one of the, the biggest proponents of government will always be public school teachers because they, they've, they, they're, they're stakeholders. And we don't tend to think of, you know, public school teachers as part of the establishment. And uh, certainly... I believe that most of them uh, go in with good intentions because they want to teach children and have a positive impact in people's lives. Sure. But they have children at their most impressionable period, and they're going to um, be a defend. They're basically paid off. I'm sorry to say such a horrible thing, but they're basically paid off by the state to be State apologists, and they have the kids. They have the kids to make to to justify state power. To in the same way that the priests in the dark ages uh, were apologists for the monarchs, they they stood up for the monarchs. In the same way, we have a intellectual class whose whose pay comes from the ruling class, the the state, and um, they're going to have a natural inclination to give a statist a pro state account of of affairs in general.
1: Yeah. Well, I don't, I don't disagree with any of that. I mean, when it comes to the, you know, what level of conspiracy d- do I want to go to for, you know, why are things like externalities, common law and tragedy, of the comment, wh- why, why is that stuff not taught? I think where I come down on that, um, is somewhere in the middle, um, not to be, you know, boring and milk toast but uh, you know i i think it's possible that some people are a little conspiratorial on that stuff but i tend to agree with what you what you laid out in the former argument with um you know just lack of incentive lack of education things like that i think that's mostly where i come down with with the open mind to it's always possible that there are nefarious actors who have a strategic plan to suppress information that's always possible but i would need some pretty some pretty um Wild evidence to back that up. Um, so, but what I like is you—you kind of did my transition for me, which is fantastic. You started talking in there about um, some popular um, misunderstandings or, or misconceptions about capitalism in general, mm-hmm. and it turns out you have an ebook that you wrote with that, right. with, yeah. that with that exact title: "Popular Misconceptions About Capitalism Debunked." And I love that book. I downloaded it. Oh, when you, thank you. Oh, it's fantastic. I, I downloaded it when you talked about it on Tom Woods' show, um, and I read it. And um, it's a short little book. Um, not to say that uh, it, it, there wasn't a ton of work that went into it, because it's obvious how much work went into it. It's packed with information that's um, easy to uh, maybe hand off to someone who's open-minded and maybe wants to learn a little bit um, without hitting them over the head too hard and then provide wow. links uh to go learn more. And so I, I encourage, I'm gonna I'm gonna link to that book on my show notes page. Um I encourage everyone listening to go get that ebook. Um it's gonna be an easy, fast read for you. Um there's four sections in it. And my absolute favorite is section number three, which is uh the government saving us from greedy capitalists. And here's why it's my favorite because the very first uh paragraph starts out by saying, it's widely believed that governments serve as a counterbalance against the excess of capitalism. As I will argue, on the contrary, it is governments that create an excess of capitalism. And I thought, I read that and I went, whoa. That, I haven't heard it put quite that way before. So what do you mean? How is it governments that create an excess of capitalism? What do you mean by that?
0: Right. On a free market, the only way for you to attain value is is to give something of value to others. So even if you get rich, the way that you get rich is by serving lots of people or serving a few rich people um, to the degree that they want to give you tons of money instead of a bunch of other people. But usually the way that people get rich is by incrementally improving the lives of millions of people. And that just could be a slightly faster memory stick. It could be anything really. So the only way to get resources is to do something that's of value to someone else, to serve your fellow man. right? But then when the government gets involved, now you've got another option, which is you can go to the government and lobby for special treatment, preferential legislations, hands out, subsidies. You could uh, make it so that other people operating in your sector need to fill out lots of forms and get licences, which means that small companies have to start paying accountants and lawyers and actuaries to make sure they're complying with all the regulations so they might not be able to afford to operate in your sector anymore. Now, the incentive is simple, right? If I can get, let's say... 1.2 million dollars for investing 1 million in improving my business, uh, and making a better product. Then that's what I'm going to do, so long as I'm not going to get 1.2 million and 1 dollars for lobbying the government instead. As soon as I can make more money from lobbying the government, then by serving my customers, then that's what I'm going to do. Not because I'm evil, but because I'm rational. I'm going to try and find a way to make the most money for my investment because if I don't do it, then someone else will. And this is why I believe in a separation of economy and state because as soon as you bring the government into the economy, corporations will stop the focus on trying to serve their customers, which benefits everyone, and instead find out how to get on the right side of government which only benefits the few. Wow,
1: that so I'm I'm just going to tell you that should be your next book, Separation of uh Economy <laughs> and State. That's that's a great title. Um so <laughs> right. I'm looking I'm I'm giving you an assignment and I'm look I'm just kidding. Um but uh yeah, that's wonderful. So everyone go get this get this ebook Popular Misconceptions About Capitalism Debunked um and you'll find a you link to that. It. Go ahead, please tell find- us
0: www.antonysamoroff.com that is my name it should be able to download from there
1: perfect, perfect so go to antonysamoroff.com that's uh, Antony with a T and no H and then Samaroff with two M's and two F's so uh and if you can't get to that one you just go to battleforliberty.com slash uh, 32 and there will be a link to it there as well um, so, you know, just to wrap up, b- before we're done, um, you know, we talked a little bit about environmentalism, we talked about popular misconceptions about capitalism, um, the excesses of capitalism, things like that. And as usual, the theme that developed, surprise, surprise for libertarians, um, is that it's every time the state gets involved, you know, the, or, or at least every time the state messes with the natural uh the natural accord of things. So in the environment it was common law was was fine, things were working well, property rights were being maintained, and then the state stepped in and said, "No, we're going to allocate things." And that's uh that, that's when the environment started to be a much bigger worry. And you know, with capitalistic enterprises as well. It turns out to be that once the state mm. steps in and and decides they're going to meddle <laughs> with the the free flow of uh Uh, you know, uh, of, of information and of goods and of property that that's when things really start to go awry. Um, so I know I have shored up my positions, especially on the environment. Thanks to this talk. Um, I want to thank you for being on the show. Um, is there anything else, uh, before we go, how can people get in touch with you if they want to learn more about Anthony Samaroff? Where can they find you?
0: Well, if you want to speak to me, you can speak add me on Facebook. That's usually how people who've heard of my work and want to speak to me have got in touch. I'd also like to make you aware that I am the co-host of my own podcast with a dear friend of mine, Tom Laird, the Scottish Liberty Podcast. We don't just cover topics that are relevant to Scotland and uh, i think it's an educational show it's a very funny show uh, i like to think i think we're quite entertaining it is. And we try and keep we try and keep a good balance between banter humor and actually providing valuable information insight and um sometimes we have great guests to so, um, if you are a podcast lover and you have time in between listening to the battle for Liberty, um, <laughs> then see if you can squeeze one or two Scottish Liberty podcasts into your schedule, and uh, we'd be very, very happy to to hear from you as well on what you think of our show
1: yeah i am I am happy to report that I am a regular listener now ever since I heard you on Tom's show. Um, it's a great show, uh, specifically, um, I listened to your episode on the environment that you did, uh, by yourself, uh, probably what, two or three weeks ago, um, maybe even a little bit longer ago than that, but it's easy to find. It's a fantastic, I mean, if if you want more info specifically on the environment, I I tell you what, he packed 15 or 16 topics into (laughs) a single podcast. I mean, you can't get done with that thing and, and. And have any other opinion. It's great. Um, So you did a fantastic job with that. um, And I've listened to some other episodes of the Scottish Liberty podcast. And I think it's fantastic. So, um, you know, as uh, as Anthony said, uh, you know, when you're done with the battle for liberty, then then go on over to Scottish Liberty. Uh, Well, this is great. Uh, Anthony, I want to thank you again for being on the show. Um, please, let, let's, not, uh, let's not lose contact with each other. Um, you're welcome back anytime. I'd love to have you back in the future uh, to talk about another topic.
0: Thank you so much, Mike. And uh, it's been a real pleasure speaking to you. Thank you for giving me the floor. And uh, I'm sure we'll talk again soon. Absolutely.